Dear listeners, this podcast discusses sensitive topics such as sexism, racism, xenophobia, colonialism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, and reproductive issues. We encourage listener discretion. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today we will be discussing the topics of language, gender, and identity. My name is Nick. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I was born in the United States and I am a white, queer, coda, or a child of a deaf adult. And I am a deaf studies major here at UVU. My name is Estrella Farias. I go by she, her, and I am Mexican-American. Both my parents are from Mexico. I was born here in the US. Um, I am a sociology major here at UVU. And yeah. <laughs> um, my name is Nicole Rojas. My pronouns are she, her. I am from Bolivia. I'm an international student studying accounting and sociology. That's awesome. Okay, well. It is so cool to be here with you two today. Um, Estrella, do you feel comfortable maybe introducing kind of the topic and what we'll be focusing on as we chat today? For sure. So today our project um, or our podcast, we will be focusing on exploring the connection between language and gender and how it has changed over time. Specifically, we will delve into how language shapes our perception of gender and how this perception has evolved over the years. And through our investigation, we hope to gain a deeper understanding of the impact that language has on society's understanding of gender roles and identities. And some of the theories that we're going to be discussing today that we're going to be connecting our lived experience and research that we each did is with intersectionality, um, gender language, gender performativity, Um, gender identity, culture, gender and work, and we'll also be discussing the historical and social cultural backgrounds of our topics. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so where do we want to, where do we want to start today? We've got a lot of like really cool research that we kind of each did independently and have brought together. Also, it is weird. I'm wearing the headphones and it's like, (laughs) so um, where do you guys feel like you kind of want to delve into first. Nicole, do you have like anything that you're like, I want to sink my teeth into this first? Um, yeah, so I kind of want to start by saying that I really like this topic and I really like educating myself. Um, I'm really eager to learn about uh, what you guys have to say about like gender and gender equality. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, and I think it's also maybe important to point out like some of the linguistic background that each of us have. Obviously, right now we are currently speaking in English, yeah. um, but I think oh, like I know that I have a background in American Sign Language because that's the language I was raised with with my parents. Um, but I and I learned Spanish in Argentina, and you guys also have a background in Spanish, correct? Do you guys want to speak to that? Yeah. Um, so Spanish was actually my first language at home. We were only allowed to speak Spanish, um, and I didn't learn English until I started going to school here in the States. But, yeah. Um, for me, yeah, Spanish is my first language as well. And I learned English when I moved to Georgia when I was six years old. Um, for me, it was very difficult to learn English because I was just, like, I was six years old, I was just learning Spanish. So I had to, like, 
stop talking Spanish completely and then like have to like learn a different language and I was just so lost and it was really really stressful for me because when I got back home to Bolivia I had forgotten much of Spanish and I had to like learn Spanish again and then I had to like I had to like forget English and then just focus completely on Spanish so it was just like a very weird transition from like speaking Spanish one day into like English completely and now now that I'm in college, I have to speak English, like, you know, for, for school. Wow, thank you. I, I, I have a question, um, just kind of about, like, like, because having that, like, back and forth, um, I'm assuming it probably also came with, like, some, like, cultural, like, shifts. Like, that would be very, like, wild to go from, like, Bolivia to Georgia to Bolivia to Utah, right? Um, what have been like any kind of like outcomes or like experiences that have with that like both cultural and language that have stood out to you or that have uh, like inspired you to take interest in this topic? Um, well, I really like, I really like how the English language like and like really focuses on like trying to be more inclusive and stuff, but also in Spanish, I had a really hard time like getting to know more about like um, LGBTQ plus uh, or like inclusiveness, because we don't we don't really talk about that. It's like it's not part of my culture. Like I really wish it was, but it's like really really hard. And but like when I'm like talking in English with like someone, I feel like I can like like say some terms and they'll understand. But like I can't find those terms in Spanish. You know, so I guess it has its you know its pros and cons. But yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. That's really interesting. If, if today you have like any experiences that might connect to what Nicole is talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a very similar experience. Um, uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but um, I grew up in a conservative family and in a very Catholic, and then we became Mormon, and yeah. So we were, we were very conservative, um, LGBTQ+. Plus, um, we, it just wasn't, yeah, it just wasn't something that we, that we discussed at all. It was often frowned upon in my family. Um, and yeah, throughout our research, something that I learned, um, about like language and being inclusive, because a lot of terms in Spanish are often labeled as like masculine or feminine terms. And, um, I actually wanted to talk about this, something that I learned is that according to the Pew Research Center, the use of pan-ethnic terms varies across immigrant generations and reflects their diverse experiences. More than half, 56% of foreign-born Latinos, most often use the name of their origin country to describe themselves, whereas that number that falls to 39% among the U.S.-born adult children of immigrant parents like the second generation, and 33% among third or higher generation Latinos. Um, and then I did also want to talk about um, the terms Latine and Latinx that are used interchangeably in, among like diverse groups of people, and um, especially among queer people. Um, but yeah, before we delve into that, do you want to share some experiences like being in Argentina and everything, like 
what did you learn? Like, what were the differences? Well, so Argentina was, it was really interesting because that was actually, it was during, so I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ or the um, of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church. And um, so a lot of my interactions with, like, um, queer culture there came from kind of, like, two experiences of, like, seeing um, trans, like, sex workers on the street a lot. And then also... Um, I was really lucky to have people who would let us into their homes who were like learning about queer issues. I remember I was in a town called La Paz and um, there was a girl there who introduced and like talked to us about like um, conversations going on in her school around the term Eye, mm-hmm. um, which is a gender neutral like third pronoun that we, we've talked about as we've been prepping for this. So, so my introduction was, was her. And kind of how queer issues and the desire for non-binary equality and marriage equality for um, queer people in Argentina was kind of being fought for. Um, And so that's kind of like my experience with it. And then when I was taking a Spanish class back here in the States, I remember asking about like gender neutral pronouns and like how would I refer to somebody who doesn't identify as a man or a woman. And like like obviously no shade or like any ill feelings towards the professor but um she just kind of shut it down and said that like that wasn't going to happen she didn't want it to happen and you know because like i i am not argentine myself and i'm not i'm not latino or latine like i kind of just was like you know what yeah like i don't feel like this is the space where i should be like well i think you know (laughs) (laughs) i think it was definitely a moment where i was just kind of introduced and like was really interested to hear what people in the community were talking about. So I'm excited to hear Megan. Yeah, so I have a question for you straight up. Would you say, how would you identify yourself? Latina, Latinx? I, that's a good question. You know, I recently learned about like these terms, Inx and Latine, and I think the more that I learn about it, the more that I learn about the background of them and how powerful they are to the queer community as like a queer woman myself is I think that I'm more I'm leaning more towards referring my to myself as Latinx or Latine actually I think I prefer Latine more than Latinx (laughs) right now but um yeah like honestly I I like to say that I now that I've done this research I I would not mind people referring to me as Latine or Latinx or Latina or Latino, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you? It's really interesting. But like for me, the first time I've heard the the term Latinx was here in the states, because like we don't you don't hear that term in like in the country or like uh, probably like different places in South America. So for me, it was like like different just to hear something like Latinx, because I've always been Latina. Um, actually, I found this. Um, Article that says, according to a recent online survey from 3030, Latino and Latina adults in the United States, only like 20, 23% of them have heard the term Latinx and only 3% actually use it. Mm. So, that's really interesting. I wonder why. That is, yeah, that's very interesting. Hmm. I, I know that um, 
a really that's like a really fascinating statistic mm -hmm. because I think I've also heard the same like when I was in Argentina I heard the term Latine mm -hmm. um, when talking about the topic and I think at one point a person said Latinx but like brought it up as like that's like maybe an equivalent term but then they went back to using Latine mm -hmm. so like I guess because I know that Estrella you've done a lot of research on this is is Latinx does it seem to be more of like a like Latin America like um I mean, everything's Latin American, right? Because we're all on this side <laughs> of the world. <laughs> um, is it seem to be more like in the U.S. like that that term is used by queer Latina people? Or what do you think? Um, well, actually, these terms were, were like keyed by or coined by um, like queer Latinx people, well, which is really interesting. But that's actually one of the big arguments that people do is that the term is like doesn't do enough is what people say um i know that like activist Sitlali anawak makes the case that both latinx and latino are anti-indigenous and like the term hispanic it's often seen as centering spanish colonizers um so that's an argument that some that like people can make and the term latin is eurocentric and that it centralizes whiteness and many people say that by adding an x or an e we're just playing with colonial identity and i find that really interesting because i'm like like people are like free to like like refer to themselves or ask people to refer to them as like latinx or latina or like however they want to but i think it's also really important to understand like the other side of it it's like oh maybe this also makes like this also pushes, or this also makes us like become more Eurocentric in a way. I don't know. It's it's really it's really interesting because in the mestizo culture, the mixture of like Spanish and indigenous people, it's it's hard to identify. Like it's hard to identify yourself with one or the other or with both. So I understand both sides of the. Of these arguments so I'm glad you brought that up and I mean like everyone has their like everyone can choose whatever they want to refer themselves to yeah that's really it's what's most important <laughs> that's really that's a really cool point that you bring up because one thing I remember thinking when I was like going through my, my notes and also like as somebody who's a white American like and who has been severed from what my immigrant ancestors brought with them, like the faiths that they practice, the cultural practices, pretty distant for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, English and Spanish were both languages that were brought here mm -hmm. from those colonial forces. And so sometimes mm -hmm. I also like think about that when we're talking about like issues of like gender and language and gender, because a, a common argument that is put forth is that, um, our current understanding of the gender binary, um, particularly in the like, like North and South America, is kind of been defined by colonial forces and white forces, and so like I love that you brought that up because that's something I've like been thinking about. It's like I mean like, <laughs> like because one of the, yeah, like it's just really 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 interesting, and I, yeah, just because like. One of the things that we've all talked about is um, Zapotec identity and oh, like yeah. the Moshe people. Mm -hmm. um, because, 
So for, for our reader listeners and readers at home, because hopefully I'll make it accessible for the deaf and hard of hearing, that would be bad if I did it. <laughs> but like um, the Mushe people, it's spelled M-U-X-E-S, but it's pronounced Mushe, are a third gender identity um, in connection to Zapotec culture in uh, Oaxaca, in Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, there are like different terms depending on the person's identity. It kind of covers a lot of ground. So there's the Mushe Guna, which are Mushe people who dress and present as women. There's the Mushe Ningui, oh, sorry, Ning, Ningyu, which is um, an equivalent to like a, a homosexual man or a, a man who seeks the love of another man. Um, and then there's Mushengola, which is an elderly Mushe. So they're, they're 60 years or older. They carry an additional title of Mushengola. It doesn't matter how they present. And then there's Mushe Wini, which are children who are Mushe. And they actually have a tradition that when a child realizes they're Mushe, they come out to their mother. And um, if the mother accepts it and embraces it and chooses to support it, the mother will help either make or help them buy their first dress. So, that so cool. That's kind of really cool. But like speaking of like language and colonialism, a big part that the Mushe um, play in Oaxaca is actually the preservation of the Zapotec language. Um, in part because Mushe is a Zapotec identity. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was really interesting, that they're intrinsically tied up in the cultural preservation mm-hmm. of the Zapotec people. Um, and they also break out of colonial binaries that were brought over from Spanish conquistadors. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was like, just like learning about that, I was like, what? I was like sitting there, um, I was watching a documentary on Netflix called Mushe, which um, followed several different Mushe people who were um, every, like a lot of them were trans, a lot of them were gay men, a lot of them were gender fluid. And a lot of them were um, even drag queens, which I thought was like fascinating. Oh. That they don't view drag as something negative; they view it as a celebration of femininity and and womanhood. And I just thought, oh, also Dia de los Muertos, which um, I think I've heard a lot of discussion that it's actually an indigenous holiday <laughs> that is unique to that culture. Um, Mushe individuals are actually the like spiritual leaders of a lot of Dia de los Muertos like practices where where they're present of course really? yeah like um, they actually showed it was beautiful one of the Mushe Guna that they showed mm-hmm. her name was Felina and she's like a really really famous um, Mushe activist mm-hmm. in um Oaxaca, and she talks a lot about, um, like, they showed her, like, preparing the altar for her mother and, like, cleansing the place with incense, and Mm -hmm. she takes care of it all October while family come and go to, like, pay respect and uh, worship their ancestors, and I thought that that was, yeah. So they're also tied up in, like, Zapotec spirituality and indigenous spirituality, which when you hear a lot about, like, any sort of pre-colonial indigenous gender um, diversity, there's, like, I know that one of the things is, like, when we talk about two-spirit people in um, indigenous in the U.S. Mm -hmm. groups, um, they were often connected as spiritual leaders Mm -hmm. or spiritual beings, which I think is really really like interesting and I was kind of like curious to hear your thoughts on like how, why you think that that might be or like 
if in any of your research or your like understanding of even other cultures what you've seen Um, yeah, I actually have a really good friend of mine, and she's from the Navajo or uh, Dine um, tribe, and she was telling me about two-spirited people, um, which is is very prominent in Navajo uh, culture, and it was really interesting. She pretty much told me that she, uh, that she believes. And a lot of people in Navajo believe that everyone has um, two spirit in them, or that like she she said that she thinks that everyone has two spirits in them, um, a man and a woman, and I just found it super interesting because it's like she she pretty much explained it to me from my understanding that they can choose whether they want to be a man or a woman, because she believes that everyone has both in them and who are we to tell people that they can't be a man or a woman you know um so I thought that was really I thought that was really interesting I was like oh wow like I never really thought about it that way like in the spiritual sense I'm like oh I have both a masculine energy in me and a feminine energy in me and I found that really interesting because like from like after she told me that um I'd be like going through my day and I'd be like, hey, like this is really cool. Like just thinking about that, like I don't have to be just a woman, you know, the whole time. Like I can choose to be either and I can choose to do like activities or anything that would be categorized as masculine or feminine without feeling ashamed or without feeling like I'm being policed, you know. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you guys letting me kind of discuss double tech culture because that was something that I think um, like the discussion of like gender and language Mm -hmm. is kind of like tied up in and I thought that was interesting Um, but like Nicole I know that or Nikki sorry I mean they're both correct I just (laughs) I I was kind of curious you I know that you wanted to talk about like kind of some intersectional issues um, with like um, I believe like racism and and language and stuff and I was wondering if you wanted to like that's like a loaded question I know (laughs) but like is is there something in particular that you wanted to like take a look at as we move forward in our discussion yeah so I think it's very interesting how like gender how like a lot of people think gender like like being like more like inclusive um it's just like something like modern when like in reality, it's, it goes way, way back, you know? And like Latin cultures or like different other cultures from like around the world, I think it's just interesting how like, it's it's not new, you know? But I just, I don't understand how like people now just like think it's like, oh, it's just a race thing. I don't know if that makes sense, you know? But yeah, just what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a really great question. So, like, and, and if I'm understanding correctly, it's kind of like, um, uh, just so I understand, are you talking about, like, how we can kind of, like, ice, like, for example, like, with the Mushe or Two-Spirit people, we can kind of isolate it to that group and say, well, that's their thing. It can't exist in these other groups. Or are you saying that, like, um, like because it existed beforehand, like, m- 
like modern denial is like like I'm kind of curious like what you're so like for me like from my perspective I feel like um a lot of like I don't know how to say this but like a lot of like white people have fought for like LGBTQ plus you know like rights and stuff but like like Latinos I, I don't I haven't seen like many Latinos do that and if they do they're like very very few or they're like mistreated or they're like you know attacked on the internet and stuff so I was just like thinking like why do you think there's that difference you know like with like race and stuff or like or like with like black activists you know mm-hmm. that's a great question <laughs> that is a really great question <laughs> you look like you have a thought staring um, I just think that well well with like the intersectionality um, theory that we're gonna be discussing like it really it really ties into everything into all these social um, issues that we see but specifically with like language and gender identity and everything I think that oftentimes maybe the reason why we see, I don't know this is just me maybe the reason why we see um, why we might see like white people as being like the face of LGBTQ plus are um, is because people of color oftentimes here in America are they're they're just not taken as seriously maybe I don't know if, if for lack of better words you know like they like or or I know because I know that there's many there's many um, activists that are people of color there's many queer, um, BIPOC people, and it's just, I don't know, I think that a lot of it just goes to, like, like, oh, I'm a person of, like, oh, I'm a person of color and I'm not going to be taken seriously because, you know, these systems are, don't allow for people like me to have a voice at the table. So, I don't know, that's why I think it's so important when we talk about inclusiveness that we allow people of like people from all all parts of all these different identities of all race and nationalities and everything to be included in these movements because when we don't allow them to be included in these movements we're we're holding them back and we're pushing yeah we're like we're I feel like when we don't allow them then we're literally pushing like like we're being, I don't know, like how to say this, like we're, like we're excluding them from these things and that, and by excluding them, we don't allow them to progress and we don't allow them to have a voice at the table when making these decisions. So I don't know, that's just because the historical side of it is like black people haven't even been considered like citizens or anything, or even they haven't even been considered people until like not that long ago, honestly, until this day, we can see this happening. Where, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. No, like, I think that was a fantastic perspective because, like, I think all three of us, when we were watching the documentary in class, and Dr. Gall, if you're listening to this, we loved the documentary. <laughs> but yes. like, how to survive a plague? We saw 
black people and brown mm-hmm. people present, mm-hmm. but we didn't know their names. Yeah, and yeah, we yeah. didn't know their histories. And Estrella, you said something that was like bone chillingly, like just poignant, where when you said like, we already know that like um, black populations are already neglected when it comes to medical care. So the mm-hmm. intersection of being queer and having AIDS and being black or being brown, like the toll that that would take. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that you pointed that out made me kind of go like, cause we, we watched a section of it. We, we don't know what happens after, but like made me wonder like, yeah, like why, why weren't we shown these individuals? Mm-hmm. Um, cause I know I've also talked about like Sylvia Rivera. Oh, She's mm-hmm. one of the most important queer activists in the US. But even while she was doing her advocacy work, gay, particularly white, cis, gay men booed her off the stage when she spoke um, in Washington for the liberation of queer people. And I, th- I think that that's not an accident because one thing that like I, that like as a white, queer, masculine person, I have to be aware of is my, my queerness impedes me because it limits my access to my whiteness does that make sense kind of like how like we talk about like white woman tears like white women are persecuted under the system but they have power in the fact that they have access to their whiteness Mm -hmm. and the same thing is very very true of i think particularly white cis gay men and white queer people in general is the, the second that they get uncomfortable, they can fall back on that whiteness. And um, like white liberal people who are supportive of queer people but might not have done work on their racism will back them and not that. And so I think that that might be like another answer is like, we, we definitely, like I'm not exempt from that. Like it's, there's a reason I have to like read so much and like do a lot does that do you feel like that answers your question Nicole no it does it does and I just like remember something I remember I asked you once and about inclusiveness and you told me that it's very important to hear stories from people from like different kinds of backgrounds Mm -hmm. and I think what you guys said it was just perfect (laughs) so thank you for answering my question Mm -hmm. thank you Nicole it was a great question that was awesome Okay, so we kind of have talked, I think, a little bit about like queerness and language. Was so as I'm kind of we have a for our listeners at home, we have a board where we have kind of like the different theories and the different like connections. It kind of, it's 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 not exactly giving like that meme with the red lines and the string and the pictures, <laughs> but it's it's definitely like a lot of really cool information. Is there anything on there that we're like noticing that we might want to like bring up that like we can connect back to the, any of the research we've done. Um, yes, I actually want to ask you, Nick, what was your experience with like growing up with like, I believe you said deaf parents. Mm-hmm. So, and with you being queer, like, I just, I, I would love to learn more about that, about you. And like disability. Yeah, like disability, yeah. Thank you guys for asking <laughs> that because that was, like, like, so, um, I think deafness, um, so both of my parents are deaf. My mother was born deaf. Yeah, you can just have your water bottle. <laughs> We're trying not to make too much noise, but I think being hydrated is more important than being <laughs> perfect. Um, so like, um, deaf people actually, so this is, 
follow me. Um, there's a musical called Spring Awakening, which is a musical that talks about German kids in like the early 1900s, late 1800s, who are like figuring out their sexuality. I actually don't like the musical or the play it's based off of because I don't like a lot of the characters and the writing and it was written by men and so I have issues with it. However, comma, there was a production of it that was put on by Death West, which is a theater company in California that is run exclusively by deaf, hard of hearing, or CODA, or certified interpreter individuals, right? So it's very much about centering deaf voices and experiences. And they did a production of Spring Awakening, where half of the characters were deaf and half of the characters were hearing. And in the play, the first scene is about um, a girl who is trying on a dress that fit her when she was younger and it doesn't fit her anymore so it kind of just comes down to her mid-calf and this is like germany in like the, the like early 1900s so that's a big no-no right and her mom walks in on her and is kind of like oh and they have a discussion about sexuality and she asks because her sister is pregnant she asks her mom where do babies come from and her mom just completely avoids and does like that stereotypical answer of like when like a boy and a girl really love each other like like that kind of yeah. thing and later on in the play she becomes pregnant and she doesn't get why like and then she is um forced to like have an abortion and she dies so like um the reason i'm bringing that up is because death west production of it that character the little girl is death and all of the like reviews centered on the fact that um death adults don't and deaf children don't have access to healthy and comprehensive sex education so they are a vulnerable population when it comes to things like unwanted pregnancy or teen pregnancy or a, even assault and so i think that and i bring that up why because i love my parents they never talked to me about sexuality um or gender or anything and they had friends who were gay my dad's best friend is a black gay deaf man who i love to bits and pieces and um my mom has told me that my dad will even call him when he's confused by stuff that like me and my husband um like do or like he'll he'll have questions about like what does this mean and like like all this stuff so i think that because deaf and and all by extension all disabled children and adults are not treated seriously and not given comprehensive sex education that impacts the children they bring into this world i knew i had a crush on toby mcguire from the time i was four years old i didn't name that i was gay until i was 15 and when i did it was kind of earth shattering so i hope that answers like your question i hope that's answering your question i think that like when we talk about like gender and disability in general um, and gender and sexuality, I think, uh, and I hope it was okay that I brought up some of the topics okay. that I did with like the play and stuff, but like I feel like that was like a very vindicating thing when I saw that play because they revived it and then took it to Broadway in 2016. And it was nominated for Best Revival of the Musical. I think it should have won. It didn't, but whatever. <laughs> I have to watch it now. Yeah, oh, there's great videos of it. And I think just for me, like, like it was very vindicating to be like, it's, it's, it's like systemic issues mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. both of my parents also 
um, have like grew up in conservative households in the Mormon church. And so like that has definitely impacted like so that that plus being deaf meant that they didn't get a lot of information that wasn't from media, which meant that I didn't get a lot of information that wasn't from media. And even when I was in high school in 2016, like there wasn't a lot of positive gay representation. Like the like Silence of the Lambs, which is not great gay rep- like the gay man is a murderer. <laughs> like, so it's like, you know, I wasn't seeing myself. Like I think Love Simon came out in 2016 when I was graduating high school. Like that was and that movie, while it's kind of critiqued now for some valid reasons, was a big deal because it was one of the first times like positive gay rep was front and center in a mainstream movie. Yeah, like so and I love my parents, but um, like I think a lot of deaf and disabled individuals just aren't taken seriously when it comes to these topics. And so they don't get access to information, which means that they can't pass it on. And in linguistics, when it comes to deaf culture, a linguistic practice and cultural practice that they share is the almost what we would call is English or like non-ASL speakers, we would call it oversharing. Cause like if somebody, for example, goes to the hospital for like hemorrhoids, I know that's weird. They'll share explicit details with all of their deaf friends so that their deaf friends can access that information because there's not information made accessible to them about healthcare, about how to like get your car repaired. And so if, they don't get access to that information on queer issues. They can't disseminate it within themselves, which means that currently, thanks to social media, there are conversations going on, but they're, they're kind of limited. And I'm going to kind of pause there to see if we, like, you guys want to take this conversation in a different direction, if you guys are relating to it, or, yeah. But, yeah, so, like, that's something thanks. I think I've seen in my research. No, thanks for your, thanks for, your, like, sharing your experience and everything. Um, wow, that... I think that when we have these topics, like you said, it's important to also include people with disabilities. And it's important to include them with, like, I mean, obviously with everything, but especially with these topics, because it's, it's like that power, like, circle that we did, that's one of the things that, like, you know, that I like that you identify as the same way that like I identify as a Spanish speaker and my parents identify as Spanish speaker yeah so it's important to bring I'm glad you brought that up yeah yeah thank you Nicole for asking that was I hope I answered your question <laughs> no you did and I thank you for for everything you shared it's I think it's really important to learn as much as we can about like like much of society and it's like because like there's like a lot of people that we haven't heard their stories mm-hmm. and they need to be heard and I think that's really important so thank you for sharing that thank you yeah um, where did we want to go with this um, I think in really quick just really quick about some research I did mm-hmm. there and I think as we do academic work, we need to acknowledge the flaws in academia. Mm-hmm. Like, I love Definitely. learning. Our education system is flaws. There is not a lot of peer-reviewed work on queer, deaf, gender, or sexuality identity. There's not. And a big part of that is, like, kind of like what I said, like, not only that they can't disseminate the information, 
but um, death lit or death literature um, is disseminated through mediums and means that aren't considered academically sound or like they can't really be peer reviewed because um, death literature is often performed and seen or filmed so it can be shared like it's kind of similar to indigenous traditions in the U.S. to like pass down things like verbally um, that's what a lot of death culture is it's just passed down and shown and taught and then built upon as time goes on and thankfully we have the technology to record right mm-hmm. but um there isn't a lot of academic like literature written about queer identity the only thing i found was a study in which interpreters were actually challenged about gender bias in their interpreting so they were given a very gender neutral description of an individual who does a job like a nurse or a police person or a police person or um stuff like this and then the interpreters were asked to interpret it into spoken english and they paid attention to when they used gendered pronouns and what those gendered pronouns were so that was like a really interesting study that i think talks a lot about like like they talked about like male dominance theory and then like what gender neutral pronouns should we use in the workplace and stuff like that because I know that that's like an ethical issue interpreters are dealing with actively as like trans people become more visible. Is like if a deaf person misgenders or dead names a trans person, like am I supposed to interpret that? Am I supposed to correct it? And how do you inform? So like lots of really interesting, interesting stuff. But there are also a lot of flaws because queer people share information through mediums like Tumblr or Reddit or TikTok. They don't share information academically. So that is, I think, a limitation academia has, is accessing the deaf community at large, so. I'm glad you brought that up, because like, I was just like trying to remember if I had ever been taught about like, you know, that aspect of like society. Never, no. I don't know if it's because like, my, my, my education was just so like, limited to like certain things, but I'm really glad you brought that up, and I think it's very important to like, learn as much as we can because like it's it's you know it's part of society you know so thank you thank you thank you nicole thank you um where do you i i'm i kind of talked for a bit so i'm kind of interested (laughs) to see where you guys would like to move on next to our conversation yeah um i guess i can talk about my personal experience with language and gendered language oops Okay. Water um, bottles are important. You need water. <laughs> um, I guess. Yeah, like we. I grew up in like your, like your. Classic Hispanic family. Actually, my parents were divorced, but um. But yeah, other than that, like grew up in a classic Hispanic family. Like, we would like. We would, um, you know, we'd go to church. We <laughs> would pray to Jesus and God, you know, believe in the Holy Ghost and everything. And um, we had very, very like gendered roles at home. Like me and my sisters, like we'd always do the cooking, cleaning, everything. My brothers would do 
I don't know what they would do, but let's be honest here. But yeah, it was very gendered. And I feel like because of these roles, it has led to our language also being gendered. Um, you know, like, instead of referring to, like, you know, instead of re referring to someone as, like, an actor or, an, like, an actress or, like, I don't know, like, in Spanish, it's always, like, ella or el or, like, like, at least how, that's how I grew up, like, la doctora, el doctor, and it's, it's, yeah, and I feel like a big reason why we have gendered language or gendered terms like this is because of these roles that we yeah. were given at a very young age. Like, I was always told, tienes que hacer, like, you have to clean the house, you have to, like, cook, you have to make dinner, you have to, like, like, your classic, like, like, quote-unquote, like, women, <laughs> like, roles, you know? Um, and I feel like that's, like I said before, like, that's a big part of why now it's, like, hard, at least with, like, my family, for us to accept that, like, hey, there's gender-neutral terms that you can use, and there's also, like, like, these things that we do don't have, like, shouldn't have gender on them. Like, everyone should be able to do them and stuff. But no, yeah, that's just my personal experience with like language and stuff. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you because like I also grew up in a religious household, conservative household, and actually something that you like mentioned just reminded me that for me for a long time. Like, if I had to go to the hospital because I was sick, right? Um, I remember my parents would say, like, oh, the doctor, but, like, like in, Sp in Spanish, it's like, el doctor. Oh. But when I had, like, a a female doctor, it would be, like, la doctorita. Oh, yeah. Ooh, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Oftentimes. And I never understood why. I was just, like, la, la, la doctora, it's, like, it, <gasps> it's the same position, like, she studied she worked really hard to get to the same you know position as, right. as a male doctor why is that ita uh-huh why are you minimizing yeah. their position because they're a woman um yeah oh my god yeah <laughs> that's crazy uh-huh yeah that you brought that up because it happens so much and not only in the spanish language yeah but also in like yeah other languages it does that tie back with like the masculine the what is it called the where, like, they oh, male dominance male theory. Dominance yeah. theory? Yeah. Where it's kind of the the inference that anybody like so like kind of, it's exactly what you brought up that like when you need to go to the doctor they would automatically say el doctor like they would mm -hmm. automatically gender him masculinely. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, oh, Nicole, that was oh my gosh, I'm sitting <laughs> yeah. here. I'm sorry, I literally <laughs> sat here like with my mouth open. I was like, yeah. I've never heard this before, and I'm so glad you pointed that out. Mm -hmm. It reminds me. There is one thing about gender in ASL, because pronouns in ASL are pointing. <laughs> so like, you, them, like you literally just like draw a circle in the distance. We, you draw a circle that points to yourself. Um, you point to yourself, you point to them, you say their name and then point in if they're not in the room, right? So like, pronouns are a little, both difficult for deaf people to learn because they're not actively participating in it in their own language, but like they're also their language is gender neutral. 
Um, in the signs for boy and girl, though, and the signs for like man and woman and father and mother, mm-hmm. um, are and grandmother and grandfather are literally the signs for masculine positions are signed at the top of the head. And the signs for women and women positions are signed at the chin. So your forehead is where the masculine identity goes and your chin is where the feminine identity goes when you're signing. Hmm. And so there's kind of like a literal physically putting men above women. So like the sign for boys, you like take your hand like you're grabbing a baseball cap at the top. Mm-hmm. But for girls, it's you you take your thumb and you make a fist but have your thumb extended and you draw it from like the back of your jaw to your chin, girl, because of bonnets. But the fact that it goes down and boys stays up. And then man is just touch your forehead, touch your chest touch for women it's touch your chin and touch your chest so there's literal like physical male dominance and this comes from the fact that asl was a language that um came so linguistically american sign language comes from french sign language but also there are theories that connect it back to plains indian sign language and and that's really cool but we don't have time for that today so like um (laughs) So, but because they were working in a male dominant structure and as these, as this language was developing, that's why like these signs are there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I get that. Like when you were bringing up like the Ita, like the kind of the yeah. literal mm-hmm. infantilizing of yeah. the, the woman doctor, like that is, is, is present. You just say doctor person, but like when it comes to like parental roles, um, not only are they not inclusive of like gender identities that go beyond the binary, but like they literally put women physically below. And this is definitely not a critique of like deaf people or people who use ASL, but the fact that the language developed this way like isn't an accident. The language is there. Mm-hmm. Um, really quick though, there is one moment where like it actually is really interesting because in in latter-day saint or mormon prayer you don't sign heavenly and then just say father you go heavenly and then you put your left hand on your chin and your right hand on your forehead and sign both father and mother at the same time so there is this really cool for those of you who are familiar with mormon theology that believes in heavenly mother that is actually something I think that ASL has a leg up on in like all other languages, is there's an inherent acknowledgement that Heavenly Mother is an active participant in prayer and in communication with her own children. Um, so like if that is something like that you believe in and is sacred to you, that is something that I think ASL, like that's always been interesting to me, is it's only with Latter-day Saint prayer, because other prayers usually just refer to God or just like Father. But in Mormon prayer, there's a specific inclination to include both the feminine and the masculine. And I just thought that, I just wanted to bring that up. Like, I think that's like really that interesting. Really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. This is that, that went in such a cool direction, Nicole. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Hello and welcome back. Um, we took a brief recess, but we're here to just kind of wrap up. 
And as we wrap up, I would like us to just maybe just briefly address why this topic is so important to each of us and what aspects of our identity are important in that. And um, Nicole, would you like to go first? Um, so I want to just say that I'm really glad that I have the opportunity to talk with you guys about this topic. As a cisgender heterosexual person, um, for me it's very important to educate myself as much as I can about you know these topics. Because um, I just, I feel it's important that I can help as many people as I can feel comfortable and safe, you know, with me. So I just want to say that I appreciate everything that we talked about and everything that you guys shared. Um, I appreciate you guys. Thank you for having me in your podcast. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> and, and Nicole, you've definitely been a massive contributor yes. as well. We love you. And this today, what do you, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, I think that by doing this research, it really helped me look at my myself more and see the way that I like how I identify or how like I don't know it helped me learn more about my culture and as a Mexican-American person I feel like it's something that I often struggle with is is like finding myself and finding what parts of my culture I want to take you know like I want to be more a part of and by learning about you know like the Zapotec people it was very it was something very um that made me feel very close connection because I do have a transgender aunt from my mom's side of the family and being able to and like she she has often expressed that she wasn't able to come out to her parents and everything until not too long ago. She is 40 years old now. And learning about these topics and learning that I literally have a family member that struggles with this, being Mexican, being transgender, and it's, it's just so important to have these conversations so that what happened to my aunt doesn't happen to other people. And just, I appreciate that. I have, as, as I, I am non-binary and I am bisexual and, I, and I'm married to a man. So like gender is kind of always coming up. But I really um, loved my, my mission. I loved the language I learned. And I also have a lot of gaps in my periphery. And sometimes even head on, I have gaps in my vision and in my comprehension. And the abundance that you two have shared with me today is something I'm gonna like carry, like I'm gonna ride this high for a while. Like this was such a special opportunity. And I'm excited too that we all collectively noticed where we could fill in and where we still need things filled in because I'm like so excited to go in and make that happen alongside you. And I'm so excited to see what you guys do. Um, and so yeah, and we thank you dear listener Whoever that may be and whoever you are, we are so grateful that you have taken the time to to sit in to our conversation and to be a part of it. And we hope you can continue to be a part of it afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.